We have all these things we feel like we're supposed to do, but it's not particularly life-giving uh, as, a, as a person. We're in a series called Transformers. Um, it's a really, really important series for our church. If you consider yourself a part of Hope Church and you missed uh, any of the last two, I would encourage you to get the CDs from the Information Center or the MP3 off our website. It's important, I think, for us as a church as we track through this to be all on the same page. Uh, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 10. If you don't, let me encourage you to just take the little insert out of the bulletin because the text that I'd like us to look at is there and I'd like us to look at it all together. Uh, so either the insert or John chapter 10. And I'm going to ask you a question. If you had to come up with a synonym for salvation, kind of a churchy word, you may have heard that word before in church environments, the word salvation. If you had to come up with a synonym for that word, what would it be? What is salvation? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. What is salvation? couple uh, words that may come to your mind as you think about this, because I want you to think about it yourself to answer it. What is salvation? Maybe it's forgiveness of sins. Maybe you might think of the gift of grace that God gives. Maybe you'd think the opportunity to go to heaven. Maybe you'd have something else. I want to show you what I think Jesus and scripture teaches is salvation. And I'm going to give you a little clue. I'm going to go through some scriptures. I want to see if you can figure out from these scriptures what the Bible seems to indicate salvation is. First, in the book of John, these will just be on the screens, John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, talking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. John 5, 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life, this eternal life, is in his Son. He who has the Son has this eternal life, and he who does not have the Son does not have this eternal life. Romans 5, 10, Paul says, For if not... For if, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his, his life? Ephesians 2, 4, also Paul. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then finally, in John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, will have salvation. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And that's an image of salvation. You have the freedom to go in and go out. There's no danger. There's tr t total security. There's no wolves. There's no, no danger for the sheep. And to find pasture. can find everything they need. Abundance. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it, life, to the full. See, according to the writers of the New Testament and to Jesus, salvation equals life. The gospel, the good news, is the availability of life in the kingdom of God. Jesus' gospel is about life, real life, full life, abundant life. The reason it's so important for us to dwell here this week as we go through this series is because the gospel has been misunderstood and miscommunicated in many churches. And people hear what they are told is the gospel, and then they reject it, but they haven't really heard the gospel. The gospel that's communicated far too often in churches is really the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven. It's like when you go to a, a, a amusement park. I like to take my kids to amusement parks to ride roller coasters. We all like roller coasters. And you get up the little sign that says, here's the minimum height you have to be to go on this roller coaster. And I always tell my daughter, Emma, who's our youngest and is kind of small, to stand on her tippy toes and wear a hat really tall so she can get in because I'm a good parent. But um, 
That's the minimum height requirement to ride. And we kind of think of that as, as our spiritual journey. Like, what's the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven? One author called this barcode Christianity. What is it that I have to do, say, and believe so I can get the heavenly stamp so when I cross across the little laser scanner to get into heaven, and it'll go clink, clink, and it'll let me in. This gospel tends to be disconnected from life and just focused on how do I get into heaven? Maybe there are some of us that want to do a few extra credit points because we're spiritual overachievers. But too often what gets communicated is, here's the minimum you need to know and do and believe to get into heaven. It's kind of like uh, the scene in that very, very theological movie, Monty Python and the Search of the Holy Grail. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending you all going to rent this movie, but there's a great scene in this movie where, um, and it's English humor for those of you that aren't familiar, um, there's a, a scene where uh, Arthur and the knights have to pass across this big, uh, this big uh, abyss, and there's a bridge that goes across, and there's a gatekeeper for the bridge. And the gatekeeper is going to ask them three questions, and if they get a question wrong, they're cast into the abyss. abyss. That's a very nerve-wracking scene. And so the first knight goes down, and the gatekeeper says, what's your name? He says, what's your quest? He tells her to find the Holy Grail, and he says, what's your favorite color? Well, that's pretty easy. He says his favorite color. He goes across. Well, the next guy, well, that's easy. I didn't know it was going to be that easy. So he goes down. What's your name? Tells his name. What's your quest? Find the Holy Grail. What's the capital of Assyria? And he says, I don't know. And then he's cast into the abyss. And then the third guy comes down, and now he's very nervous. What's he going to be asked? What's your name? He says his name. What's your quest? Uh, He says to find the Holy Grail. And then he says, what's uh, what's your favorite color? But the guy's so nervous at this point, he says red. No, blue. And then he's cast into the abyss. And then the final guy comes down and he says, what, uh, what's your name? He says his name. What's your quest? Uh, he says to find the Holy Grail. And then he says, uh, what, and this is kind of a running gag through the whole movie, so it's not going to make sense to you, but he says, what's the airspeed velocity, velocity of a coconut-laden swallow? Uh, and it's just been a running gag through the whole movie. And the response is kind of a part of that gag. Well, is it an African or European swallow? And the gatekeeper says, I don't know. And then the gatekeeper is cast into the abyss. <laughs> For many of us, that's our picture of heaven. That we come up to the gates of heaven, the pearly gates, which just have to ask you a question, why is there a gate? Like, is heaven in a bad neighborhood? Uh, are they trying to keep people, keep people out of heaven? I don't understand that. But you come to the gate, and it's like you're, you, you, you're asked the, the, these questions, you know, or do you believe these right doctrines, or did you do the right rituals, or do you have your confirmation at the right time, or do the right kind of baptism, do you have communion enough? Whatever it is that you're told you're supposed to do, did you say the right prayer and the right words? And if you get the answer right, then you get in. And what that does is it creates endless debates in churches about whose list is right. And those with very short lists say, well, it's all about grace. There's nothing we can do anyway. And those with long lists say, but what about discipleship? You guys are setting the bar too low. But what's really being argued about is what are the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven, to be a Christian? And on both sides, the premise is salvation is about how do I get into heaven? But when you get back to the New Testament, you have to ask this question. Is that what salvation really is? Let me ask it in this way. Where is it in any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the books of the Bible that record Jesus' story, where is it that Jesus lays out in detail the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven? Where is it that he says, this is what you have to do? He doesn't. Did he forget? Did he get back to heaven after his resurrection and go, Doggone, I knew there was something I was supposed to tell him. No, Jesus never presents the gospel, the good news, as here's what you have to do, say, and believe at minimum to get into heaven when you die. Here it was Jesus' gospel. And again, this has been our theme verse for the series, Mark chapter 1, 
Verse 14 and 15, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel, same word of God. The time has come. In other words, everything you've been waiting for to happen has happened. The kingdom of God is near. It's right at hand. Repent, change the way you think and believe in the good news. What is the good news? That the kingdom of God is here. It's now broken through into this world through me, Jesus says, and it's available to anybody and everybody who wants to come in. The gospel is that life in the kingdom of God, life in God's presence, access to his power, to the life you've always wanted to have, to be all that God created you to be, that life is now available to ordinary, messy human beings. Obviously, this includes the promise of salvation and and forgiveness of sins that comes through the cross. Obviously, this involves eternity with God in heaven, which the resurrection sealed. But it's more than that. It's about life right here and now. And the reason this is important Because if we don't grasp this, the gospel becomes disconnected from life and we miss the opportunity to morph. The gospel, the good news is that it's now possible for ordinary, messed up folks like you and I to live gradually as empowered by the Holy Spirit the kind of life we want to live and to enter into the life which we were created for. And if you want it, you can just walk right in. You'll have your sins forgiven. Death itself can't keep you from this life, but it starts now. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. And Jesus says, he's the portal. In John 10, he says, I'm the gate. This life, the opportunity for it, it is broken into this world through me, Jesus says. And this opportunity is the greatest opportunity you'll you'll ever see. It's the pearl of great price, he'll call it. It's, It's a treasure that's lost in a field. It's worth everything you can have to get it. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. It's like you can't believe your luck. We talked about last week. It's like the story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, couldn't keep his family fed. And then he lucks into this bubbling crude and it changes his life. It's the same kind of idea. You can't believe your luck. And the idea is that it's the only sane option. To choose to enter into this life, to choose to follow Christ, Jesus' perspective, it's not a spiritual decision, it's just the smart decision. You can live in God's kingdom, in the presence and under the reign of God. And this is all done for you because God is for you radically, no matter where you've been or what you've done. So those of us who are dissatisfied with our lives, those of us who know the ache between who we are and who we really want to be, you can come over time with the help of the Holy Spirit to live more and more as Christ would live if he were living your life. You can morph. You can live the life you've always wanted to live. You can have life running out your ears, abundant life. Jesus worked really hard to communicate this good news. And as people begin to understand it, Jesus would walk up to them and tap them on the shoulder and invite them to follow him, and they would leave everything to follow him. We talked about this last week. Now, in Jesus' day, what that meant for people to follow Jesus was quite clear. You would literally, physically follow Jesus around. You would leave everything to be with him. And as you did, you got a clear picture of what life was like, the life that he was offering. But here's a critical question. In our day, when Jesus is no longer here with us physically, what does it mean specifically and concretely to follow Jesus, to be an apprentice, to be a disciple? Too often, far too many of us, when we hear follow Jesus, what we think is, I have to try harder to be a Christian and do Christian-y things. We're like the person in the drama that's, you know, trying to do our prayer life the right way. We have a certain scenario we think it's supposed to look like. And so we just think, I'm going to try hard for a while. And we do for a while. 
and it gets frustrating, and we constantly fail, and we give up for a season until the guilt level gets high enough, and then we start back into this cycle. And many of you have lived in that cycle within church world for decades. What I want to do in the few minutes we have left is to try to paint a picture in our day of what it really looks like practically and concretely to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, we looked at this last week. Jesus says, a student, a disciple, an apprentice is not above his teacher. But everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. What I want you to see is the metaphor of training that Jesus used there. The, the, the person who is fully trained will be like his teacher. This idea of training, this metaphor of training is used actually throughout the New Testament. I want to give you a picture of this in several places. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says it like this, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it, training, to get a crown that will not last, just a, you know, a wreath that you'd win at, at a race. But we do it, we do spiritual training to get a crown that will last forever, to get life. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. This is a really important distinction you have to understand if you want to get what it means to follow Jesus. The important distinction is this. There's a distinction between training versus trying. A lot of us get very frustrated in our spiritual lives because we spend a lot of time trying to be like Jesus. But see, the Bible uses this physical metaphor to help us understand the concept of training versus trying. The Bible uses the image of a runner. Paul does. And I want to build on that for example, uh, for, uh, for a second. And I want to do a, kind of an exercise in imagination. Um, this, I know this isn't harvest land, but you can do it. You're grown-ups. You can use your, your you know, brain pan for, uh, on Sunday. Um, Imagine with me for a moment, just engage in this exercise of imagine. Um, imagine for a moment that your doorbell rings one day, you're not, there's a knock at your door, you open the door and there's some people there in suits and all kind of official looking matching sweat suits and uh, th it says the U.S. Olympic Committee on it and they come in and they want to talk to you as so you let them into your house. And they say, we've been doing research across our country. We've been studying people's medical records. we got access to medical records. We've been studying people's age, and we've been studying people's uh, you know, health issues. We've been studying people's physical fitness uh, assessments as they grow up through school, as you go through the president's physical fitness stuff. We've studied all that stuff, and we have determined that more than anybody else in the entire population of the United States, that you are best equipped physically in your age and everything to bring home the gold medal in the marathon at the next Olympics, which won't be in Chicago apparently. They say this and they're not making this up. They're not, this aren't, these aren't nut jobs. This is the real deal. They're in your living room. They've studied this. They're scientists. They know what they're talking about. And they run you through a battery of tests and sure enough, their conclusions are right that you are the right person. You have the best chance of bringing home the gold medal. And you begin to dream about this. You begin to dream about entering into this giant stadium during the opening ceremonies, a billion people worldwide watching you walk in with the dream team basketball team and these great track athletes and others walking into the stadium amongst all those other nations. You begin to dream about the gun going off and a hundred million people worldwide watching you represent this country in your little racing outfit running the marathon. You dream of standing on the podium 
I mean, you get goosebumps when you think about it. And, and the flag coming down in the middle as they bring them down. The national anthem beginning to be played. And how you know you'd well up with tears and you start to believe. This is the race I was born to run. Now here's my question. I want you to, th- you to think about your current daily routine. The food that you eat, the way that you sleep, the exercise routine you have or don't have. Show of hands, how many of you, just public confession, how many of you would have to go through at least some minor changes in your daily routine to accomplish the goal of running a marathon in the Olympics? Yeah, a few of us. I'll ask it this way. How many of you could go out today and run and finish a marathon? Probably a few of you, a couple of you could do this, probably. But wait, what if I said, no, no, how many of you could go out and run and finish a marathon if you tried really, really hard? How many of you think people who run marathons are just not that bright? Yeah, that's good. Okay. There's an important distinction here between training versus trying. A few of us, a few of us, very few of us could go out and run a marathon today, finish it, even if we really, really, really tried. But the truth is, if we're healthy and we don't have some kind of physical challenge, the truth is most of us could get to the place where we could run and finish a marathon if we subjected ourselves to proper training for enough time. Most of us could do that. Maria Shriver tells a story of when she introduced uh, her husband, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to Ted Kennedy, her uncle. They're very different on the political spectrum. Uh, Arnold was very, very conservative. He was a Republican. Ted uh, was very, very liberal on the Democratic side. And uh, she was nervous about them meeting one another. And so when she introduced Arnold to Ted, she said to her uncle, Ted, don't think of him as a Republican. Think of him as the man that I love. And if that doesn't work, think of him as the man who could crush you. But here's the deal. It's fair to say that Arnold and Ted have had different training regimes in their life. Is that fair to say, you think, just as you look at Ted and Arnold? I think so. Training versus trying. Very many people get frustrated or discouraged in their transformation, in their Christian life. And they attempt at being an apprentice because they try really, really hard and they just keep failing. I want to be as clear as I know how to be. This is a really critical truth that I need to try to make as clear as I can. To follow Jesus, to be a disciple in our day and age, what it means for you to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to enter into a life of training. That is, to arrange your life around the practices, relationships, and experiences that can help me receive power from the Spirit of God to live a kingdom kind of life. Let me say that again. To follow Jesus is to enter into a life of training. That is to arrange my life about the practices, relationships, and experiences that can help me receive power from the Spirit of God to live a kingdom kind of life. I believe transformation, morphing, is possible if we do as Jesus did. Arrange our lives around the practices, relationships, and experiences that can help me receive power from the Spirit of God to live live the kind of life that I want to live. Now, our formal term for this and I don't use this term very much because it kind of turns people off sometimes, but is the term spiritual practice or spiritual discipline. The word discipline is a word we don't typically like. Some of us, it's been misused in some of our cultures. Maybe we were in a home or in a church environment where there was inappropriate discipline. Maybe there was extreme legalism in some of the church environments we grew up in. But I invite you to be open to the concept for a second. Obviously, the word um, discipline and disciple come from the same word. And let me give you a definition of what a discipline is. A practice or a spiritual discipline is something I can do by direct effort, which enables me to eventually do what I cannot now do by direct effort. Here's what that looks like. 
you want to run a marathon, but most of us could not go out and run a marathon today. Even if we tried really, really hard, even if we gave effort to running it, we couldn't do it. But I can do practices, I can do disciplines by effort. I can go out and train myself so that over time that training will lead to be able to do by effort what I can't do now by effort, which would be run a marathon. Same with something else, like a skill like playing a piano. Most of us couldn't sit down and play a piece from Beethoven on the piano. But if you subjected yourself to, through effort, to practice disciplines of training and learning and, and practicing, over time, you could do what you can't now do because of that training, because of that discipline. Same thing with like learning a foreign language. Most of us couldn't speak Spanish fluently at this point. But if we subjected ourselves through our efforts to certain kinds of training, going to school, being taught, studying, memorizing vocabulary, over time, I would be able to do what I cannot now do, which would be to speak Spanish. A discipline is something I do by direct effort, which enables me to eventually do what I cannot now do by direct effort. So you put these two things together. A spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice, practice is any practice or relationship or an experience that I engage in, it takes effort, that will help me receive power from the Spirit of God to live a kingdom kind of life. So in order to get practical, let me give you a few examples in the form of questions of what things, what practices and disciplines could look like lived out in your life. Then I'll start with some easy ones. Is prayer a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Like in the drama, prayer is something that Jesus taught his followers to do. It is something that shapes us spiritually. What about reading the Bible? Absolutely, reading the Bible is a spiritual practice, a discipline. It helps shape us. It puts truth into us to combat the lies we hear in our world, our culture, from our own baggage. We went through a season of fasting as a church in the month of September. Fasting is a spiritual discipline, a spiritual practice. It teaches us how much our appetites can rule over our feelings and our moods. And the more we fast, the more we learn to break free from the need to fulfill those appetites, to for our mood and our feelings to be okay, and we gain freedom. We're not under control of you know, our appetites anymore. What about solitude? Solitude can be a spiritual practice. Jesus oftentimes engaged in times getting away to replenish and listen to God. I'm going to give you a couple maybe that are a little more outside the box. Can sleep be a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice? Yes or no? Yeah, I can. The Bible talks a lot about the Sabbath, that the, the, the practice of the Sabbath of resting is actually a spiritual discipline or spiritual practice. You ask why? Well, because remember, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline is something as if any practice, relationship, or experience that helps me receive power from the Spirit of God to live a kingdom kind of life. Part of living a kingdom kind of life is to be a person of love. How many of you find it harder to love, or, or in other words, easier to be grumpy if you're tired? Yeah, Absolutely. So, so resting and sleeping is a spiritual practice. What about eating your favorite food? Can that be a spiritual discipline? Actually, yes. I know you're afraid to say it out loud in church, but yes. Not always. Not like eating at three meals a day every day. But just like feasting is a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline, so is uh, celebration. Is, uh, just like fasting is, so is feasting. In fact, God orders his people to feast to be people of celebration. You don't have to look it up, but you can look up later. Deuteronomy chapter 14, Jesus tells his people, you need to save some money, and then once a year you need to go down to Jerusalem for the big feast, the big celebration, and he says, buy whatever kind of meat you like, buy wine and strong drink, whatever you want, and throw a party. You're ordered to do that. 
God is a God of feasting and joy and celebration. Now, feasting without fasting is not good, and fasting without feasting is not good. But doing things that bring you joy is a good thing, is a spiritual practice. So hobbies can be spiritual practices. See, a fundamental problem with the spiritual life is the division we made in our minds between secular and spiritual. And so because of that, we think some stuff counts and some stuff doesn't. So the question we all ask ourselves all day, every day is, am I doing enough of the stuff that counts long enough every day? It's the wrong question. It all counts. Anything that places me in a position to receive power from God, to live a kingdom kind of life, counts. Any practice, any relationship, any experience, that, all that stuff counts. The point is, all through your day, you have a chance to put yourself in a place where you can receive power from God to live a kingdom kind of life. So as we close, I want to give you three questions for you to ask as you walk through your week this week. And the little sticker we gave you is to remind you to ask these questions. Put the sticker on your mirror, put it in your car, wherever, and keep this, these questions handy. And I really, I, don't, I know most of you don't do it, but I really would encourage you to just walk through your day and all through your day, all day, ask these three questions. Question number one, what does life in the kingdom look like in my world? See, again, we tend to over-spiritualize this stuff, but how you live it out in your world is really important. What's the age you have, you, you are? What, what, do you have kids or not have kids? How old are your kids? Are your, uh, do you work full-time, part-time? Are you a stay-at-home mom or dad? All those things affect how this question is answered. The problem is we have distorted ideas about spirituality that have caused massive amounts of damage to people through the centuries, particularly around legalism and rigidity and kind of forcing one model for what works spiritually on other people. Don't do any of this stuff out of guilt or shame or because you're forced or you feel coerced to, to do it. Do it because your want to grows. Now, obviously, like anything, there are times where any practice, any discipline is hard. There are times if you learn to play the piano or run a marathon or speak Spanish, there are times you're just not in the mood, but your desire for the results will push you through, and it's the same here. In fact, one way you know your spiritual life is growing is your desire for it is growing too. I was reading in my devotions this week in the book of Psalms where David says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And I was thinking, that's not me. I wish it was, but it's not. I don't long for God like a desperate, thirsty deer longs for water. But I realized I want to long for God that way. I long to long for God like that. So at least my want to is growing. I'm not all the way there yet. But my, my desire is growing. Second question for you to ask is, what are the barriers that keep me from living this life? What does life in the kingdom look like in my world, and what are the barriers that keep me from living this life? And obviously, uh, probably immediately we think of certain sins, and it can be that, but you know what? We're never going to be free from sin. But there are lots of other things that are also barriers. Let me give you a couple of mine as I walked through this exercise this week because I felt like I needed to do it as well. Two things that jumped out at me, number one, was fear. I realized as I walked through this week how much of my life is motivated by fear. Not like out-and-out terror, but fear, like I'm afraid of what people might think of me and so I don't practice confession or authenticity in, in a relationship. Or I'm afraid of, is God really going to show up so I hedge my best and don't fully trust him? Do I trust him fully with my children? Do I trust him fully with, with my finances or my future? I tend to be dominated by fear a lot. It's just me. It's a barrier. The second thing I thought of this week as I walked through my, my life as a barrier for me and my spiritual growth is hurry. 
One writer said we should ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because you cannot grow spiritually if you're always rushed. And that's a big problem for me. I have a busy job. I have a busy family life. You know, the most common answer in our world of how are things going with you is they're busy. That's not a good thing. Hurry keeps us from loving. It keeps us from loving God. It keeps us from loving others. These barriers will be different from all of us. Some of us, it's codependency. Some of it's it's our stuff. Our money has too tight a grip on our hearts. Some of us, it's workaholism. Some of us, anger from our past. For some of us, it's pain. Others of us, it's just laziness. We don't want to do the effort. But part of the reason we can't mass produce disciples, part of the reason why I believe that the whole curriculum thing, which can be valuable, but ultimately doesn't work in discipleship, is because you cannot produce disciples on a conveyor belt. Individually, you have to think about what are your barriers. So, three important questions to ask. What does life in the kingdom look like in my world? What are the barriers that keep me from living this life? And number three, what are the practices, relationships, and experiences that will help me overcome these barriers and live that kind of life, the kingdom life? And the deal here is be as creative as you want to be. Look at the life of Jesus and study what he did as an example. He's the model for our kind of life. Make your practices, your disciplines match up with your barriers. So if you struggle with pride, you should serve people anonymously, people who aren't going to appreciate your service. That'll help fight your pride. If you hold on to stuff too much, you need to learn to give. If you're an image management person, you need to practice regularly the discipline of confession. If you struggle managing your appetites, then you need to fast. If you struggle with despair, you need to celebrate. Two things that are uh, essential for every single one of us, I believe, and if you study Scripture, there are two practices that everybody has to do. One is study Scripture, and one is be in relationship, be in community. Those two are essential. But what are the things that can help you draw close to Christ and His kind of life? Now, next week, we're going to talk about the importance of decision to intend to do this. Because you can't drift into it. Just like you can't drift into learning to play piano and you can't drift into running a marathon and you can't drift into learning Spanish, you won't drift into spiritual growth or morphing. You have to decide. You have to be intending to do it. Business as usual will not get it done. Decision is a critical part of your transformation. You must decide to follow. Will you make the number one priority of your life becoming an apprentice? of entering into the life of training, which will, over time, with God's help, allow you to experience salvation, life, the life you've always wanted to live. But as we close, I want to just say one word to those of you who have been around church for a while. Maybe you've been around for a while, then you left for a while. But you have spent a lot of time in your spiritual journey trying. I'm going to invite you to lay down trying anymore. That may sound like a weird thing to hear from the stage. But see, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you find your spiritual journey has not been easy and light, then you're not doing the right stuff. You're not doing it the way God would encourage you to do it. You're not carrying his yoke. If you're trying too much and consistently failing, then you're missing the point. It's not about trying. It's about training. Yes, there's effort involved but it's about doing the little things throughout your day, every day, that allow you to enter into the presence of God and tap into his power, which will help you live the kind of life you want to live. So lay that down and open your heart. Begin to ask these questions of yourself as you walk through your day and allow God to show you what it would look like for you to live a kingdom life in your life, in your everyday life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am grateful for um, the opportunity, the invitation to live this kind of life. And I ask, Lord, as we walk away from this place today, that you would um, 
first of all, help those of us who have spent some time in religious environments trying to follow you, trying to be a good Christian, trying to kind of do the right things and consistently failed and have lived that cycle of failure and guilt and failure and guilt. Help us to lay that yoke down and understand it's not about trying. It's about, it's about training. It's about practicing little things in our life that we can do, that anybody can do. Anybody can spend time reading 15 minutes of Scripture. Anytime can, anybody can say a prayer. Anytime can engage, anybody can engage in community with another person in relationship. Anyone can serve. It's through doing things that anyone can do with a little effort that over time we're able to do things that we can't now do. We can live the life that we really want to live. But God, help us to see the steps that this requires. Help us see what it would look like to really live that kind of life in our everyday lives. Help us to get a vision, a picture for this. We're grateful for your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.